Let's pray. Father, as we come before your word today, I ask that by your grace, your spirit would allow your words to sink deeply into our hearts. And that, God, you would grant to us, to all of us, a greater sense of your presence. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, with this current pandemic, one of the most interesting things that I've learned about the coronavirus is all the different ways that the, the coronavirus can show up in different people. Some people will get sick but have absolutely no symptoms at all. Others will catch a cold like, will catch a cold or have symptoms like a cold. Others will get so sick they'll have flu-like symptoms. And yet others will become so sick that they can't breathe, they've got to be rushed to the hospital and be placed on oxygen or even a ventilator to help them survive. Now with the flu season this year, one of the other challenges of uh, COVID-19 is the fact that how are you gonna distinguish between flu versus COVID-19? Now that's something that is extremely difficult because they often show up in the same exact way. And many times it's probably better to just go ahead and test for both if you don't know. But there's at least one thing that if you get it, you can be reasonably assured that you've got a case of COVID-19 rather than seasonal influenza. Can you guess what that is? It's your loss of sense of smell or taste. Now, if you lose any of these senses, you can be reasonably sure that you've got a case of COVID-19 instead of the seasonal flu. Now, I'm going to venture to guess that most of you have never lost this sense before, the, either of these senses before. Uh, but just imagine with me for a moment if you've lost your sense of smell. And for those of you coffee lovers out there, imagine waking up to brew your cup of freshly ground coffee and you as you're bringing the cup of warm coffee fresh coffee up to your nose all you can smell as well nothing or imagine if you lose your sense of taste and you've worked hard that that morning and made your uh fresh taco breakfast tacos or you've poured fresh syrup over your waffles and you bring your food up to your mouth and all you can taste as well Nothing. Whether you've actually experienced something like this or not, I'm sure that we've all experienced a sense of losing something one way or another. So what about the times when you lose your sense of God's love for you? Maybe it's a season of struggling with your faith or a hard trial that you've been through, or maybe it's just all these weeks and months of isolating yourself because of the pandemic. What do you do when you lose a sense of God's genuine love for you. This morning, we're going to be continuing on in our sermon series, looking at the diverse excellencies of Jesus Christ. And what we hope to accomplish in this series is to stir up, to stoke, to increase your affections for Jesus Christ. And we want to do that by looking at all the different ways that he is at once glorious and majestic and sovereign, but at the same time, lowly, humble, and meek. Now, in your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of John, chapter 13. Last week, Minister Henry uh, pointed out all the different ways that 
If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to humbly serve one another, just like Christ served us. And so this week, what I want to do is turn our attention to just exactly how Christ has served us. And so I want to do that by focusing on verses 1 through 11. And as we walk through these passages, uh, I want to point out three specific answers to the question, what do you do when you lose a sense that God genuinely loves you? And my first point is this. Recover a sense of wonder at Jesus' shocking love for you. You have to recover a sense of wonder at Jesus' shocking love for you. Now, our story takes place during the time of the Passover. And this was a time when families uh, would celebrate um, by slaughtering a lamb, eating unleavened bread, all the while remembering all that God had done for them in the land of Egypt during the time of Moses. This was a time when they were in slavery. And on that last day, that last plague, God struck down the firstborn of all of Egypt, but, they, but he passed over all the homes of the Jews when he saw the blood of the lamb smeared over their doorposts. So let's start reading in chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, I think it's real interesting that while all four biographers of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of them wrote about Jesus' last supper with his disciples, there's only one disciple, there's only one biographer, and that was the Apostle John, who thought it, in, who thought it important enough to document for us this episode of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And I think that makes sense. You see, all throughout John's writings, one of his great themes is God's love for us. Just think about his most famous verse of all his writings, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And so what follows is basically John showing us just exactly how much Jesus loved his own people, the full extent of his love for us, for he loved them to the end. Let's read on in verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, if you were a Jew, you would just you would be shocked at what you just read, what you just heard. You'd be shocked. The disciples certainly were. For ancient Jews, foot washing was something that pretty much only slaves did. And not only that, Jews would not even go there. Jews, Jewish slaves would not even go there. This was something only non-Jewish Gentile slaves would do. You know, and for the most part, even friends wouldn't even do this for one another. 
What's more, there's evidence that um, nowhere in ancient Jewish or Greco-Roman literature is there any recording of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. So this is it. This is the only time recorded for us in ancient literature that we know of where there's this reversal of roles that takes place. And what Jesus, so what Jesus did here was completely countercultural. It was completely shocking to the ears of ancient listeners that he would wash feet at any time, at, at all. And so, you know, when we in, in the 21st century read a story like this, it is so easy to let the familiarity of it just really dampen our emotional response to it. But I want you to just think about this. It was completely unnecessary for Jesus to do this at all. For him to even get down and wash his disciples' feet was not something he had to do. He could just easily have skipped over this and moved on with the rest of dinner. But he didn't. And for the rest of time, John, having personally recorded down the fact that Jesus washed his own feet, for the rest of time, we have this record. And we can see and behold Jesus, the great king of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, stooping down and doing something that even for us, if we were ancient Jews, we would not do for one another. And what's more, do you notice that Judas Iscariot was sitting there as well? Jesus didn't pass over him. Do you, you realize that? Jesus, knowing who was about to betray him, stooped down and washed Judas's feet as well. He didn't just leave him out of the foot washing party. No, Jesus washed Judas's feet. So not only did, was what Jesus did countercultural, it was counterintuitive. If, if your enemy was sitting in front of you, which of us would do what Jesus did? Sometimes it, it, it takes something shocking, something completely uh, unexpected, something that we would not have thought would happen to help us recover a sense of just how incredibly stunning the love of God is for us. So it, it reminds me of the uh, Old Testament prophet Hosea. He's a great example of, of this. Uh, remember what God told his prophet to do? Shockingly, he says to him, go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So Hosea, in faithful obedience, he does exactly just that. He goes and marries a, a woman named Gomer. They have children. But soon afterwards, Gomer leaves the relationship, runs after another lover, and commits adultery. But then God says to Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. This was meant to symbolize God's great love, his relentless love for his people of Israel. And what's shocking about what God asked one of his faithful prophets to do should be the same thing that shocks us here in the 21st century about God's love for us. Even though we have uh, lusted after other things and turned our backs 
towards him, turn, turned our backs against him and turned towards other gods in our lives. We've pursued other lovers. God's relentless love for us is steadfast. It remains unchanged. So when you think about Jesus washing his disciples' feet, I, I know the shockingness of all of this is really not something that comes naturally to us because it's not really part of our culture. We don't do this for one another anymore. It doesn't really trigger many emotions for us. But what I want more than anything else for you is, is just to put yourself in the, in the shoes uh, of a first century Jew. And as you're hearing John's letter read to you, just imagine the shock that you would feel if you were one of those ancient listeners hearing that a man named Jesus who claimed to be God stooped down to wash his disciples' feet. He stooped down to such a level just to show us that he loves us so much. There's no bar, no holds barred. There's no limit. There's no boundaries to Jesus' love for you. So let the scene of Jesus stooping down to wash his disciples' feet jolt us back into the reality that Jesus was for real. His love for you is serious. So what do you do when you lose the sense that God genuinely loves you? First, you have to recover a sense of Jesus' shocking love for you. And second, you have to recover a sense of Jesus' death-embracing love for you. Let's read on in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet but only, but also my hands and my head. Now, this is where the tension in our story builds up. Jesus is going around the dining table, and he's in the form of a servant washing his disciples' feet one by one. Now, just imagine the silent stares of disciples looking at each other and just observing their master washing their dusty feet. Imagine the awkwardness. Imagine each disciple's kind of squirming even uh, as they uncomfortably watch Jesus washing their feet, one and then the other. And now it's Peter's turn. And in his typical brashness, he cries out, are you going to wash my feet? The disciples turn their attention from Peter to Jesus, silent, awaiting their master's reply. And what does Jesus say to Peter? You won't understand what I'm doing now, but if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. If I don't wash your feet, Peter, we can't have a relationship with each other. We, we, don't, we don't have fellowship with one another. Now, I want us to pause here and think about the fact that if Jesus was talking about just foot washing, just the literal act of foot washing at this time with Peter, 
none of this would really make sense. But the exchange between Jesus and Peter clues us into the fact that this foot washing scene is really not just about foot washing. It's not. There's something bigger at play here. And that something is that Jesus washing his disciples' feet is really pointing to the cross. In washing his disciples' feet, Jesus was pointing to an even greater way that he would soon be humiliated for his own people, being mocked and slain and ultimately hung on the cross for all to see, shedding his blood in order to atone for the sins of his own people, washing them, cleansing them, to take away their sins once and for all. So now it makes sense why Jesus had to say this, that Peter, Peter had to be washed. This was a symbol of his unity with Christ. So Peter comes to his senses and, and understands a bit of what Jesus is trying to say. And so we find him shouting, Lord, not my feet only, but also my head, hands, my head. And after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, when all the pieces finally come together for him, I can only imagine Peter looking back at the time when Jesus, at the night when Jesus washed his feet and, and feeling the sense of wonder come over him, rush over him at Jesus' death, embracing love for him. And, and that's really the sense of wonder that I want us to recover. You know, I still remember the Sunday morning back in the fall of 2004. It was the moment that the gospel became real to me. It was not just something that I understood in my head, but it struck my heart for the first time. I had believed in Christ as an eight-year-old, but as an 18-year-old, I, had, I, had, I was in the middle of just running away from him. Sin, really in the form of an addiction to pornography, had ravished my life. I was numb to sin, and every sense I once had of God's love for me was now gone. The preacher that morning was David Nasser, who was a former Muslim. He had turned, he had become a Christian evangelist by God's grace. And, and that morning was the morning that the Holy Spirit sovereignly awakened me allowing me to recover my sense of wonder at Jesus' death, embracing love for me. You know, David Nasser preached a simple, but uh, he, he preached the simple but old truths of the gospel to us. You know, Christianity is about recognizing that you're a sinner in need of a savior. There's, there's nothing you can do to earn his love for you. But you can be saved you can be made right with God simply by turning away from your sins, by repenting and turning to God and trusting in Christ and his work on the cross to make you right with him. And he said that morning, if you're a Christian today, you're as righteous as you'll ever be in God's sight. What an astounding statement. No matter how unclean I felt inside, by faith, God sees me and God saw me as perfectly, righteousness, as perfectly righteous because he sees and he saw Christ in me. What's more, he said, there's nothing more you can do to earn his love for you. And there's nothing you can do to take away 
his love from you. And for an 18-year-old who is teetering on just losing it all, losing his faith, wondering whether there is any hope left for a sinner like me, the hope the Holy Spirit restored my sense of wonder at Jesus' death, embracing love for me by reminding me that Christians are made right with God by faith alone. And no one, nothing can snatch us out from his hands. George Whitfield, the great 18th century preacher, captures what I came to understand of the gospel that morning. Listen to this, quote, For as a man's unworthiness was not a cause or not the cause of God's giving him Christ's righteousness, so neither shall his unworthiness be a cause of his taking it away. What a beautiful truth. Friends, if you're a Christian, I know how easy it is to lose this sense of wonder at Jesus' death-embracing love for you. I mean, just think about it. When was the last time you genuinely understood the depths of your sins and the chasm that stands between the infinitely holy God? When was the last time that you felt an overwhelming sense of marvel and awe at just how much Christ loves you and how his cross bridges that chasm for you? If you're in a place where you've lost a sense of God's love for you, look no further than the cross. Don't, doesn't necessarily mean that you'll always feel emotionally loved by God. It's not about that. We, we can't trust our feelings about this because uh, uh, feelings come and go. You have to rely on a different sense, and that's the sense of spiritual sight. Look to Christ. Gaze upon his cross and see his death-embracing love for you. Pray with all your heart that God would restore a sense of joy for your salvation. And plead with him to renew his sense of love for you, that he would allow you to rediscover the wonders of his mercy through the gospel. Now, if you're not a Christian yet, will you be like Peter and just continue to refuse Jesus washing your feet? Don't you realize that apart from being washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, you stand condemned in all your sins before a holy God? Why will you refuse? Why won't you come? Ask God to give you the gift of faith. New taste buds that delight no longer in the pleasures of this world. A new heart that beats to please the living God and new eyes to see his death-embracing love for you. Humbly come and let your feet be washed by Jesus and be cleansed of all your sins. So what do you do when you lose a sense that God genuinely loves you? First, you have to recover a sense of wonder at Jesus' shocking love for you. And second, you have to recover a sense of wonder at Jesus' um, death embracing love for you and third and finally you have to recover a sense of wonder at jesus's ever forgiving love for you peter at this point in the story realizes that he was he was wrong at having refused jesus washing his feet 
which is why he changes his mind and says, you know, wash my hands and wash my head as well. But here, I want you to notice that Jesus shifts the meaning of his metaphor as he applies it to foot washing. And, and what that means is, um, what I want you to see is there's a difference between being cleansed once and for all by faith in Christ's atoning work on the cross versus a cleansing that is a daily thing, a, a cleansing from daily sins after we um, become Christians. So I want you to look down at verse 10 with me. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you are clean. You know, one way to interpret what Jesus is trying to say here is to draw on um, something that Jews would understand in their day. Let's say you're headed to someone's house for a dinner, a dinner party one day. You've taken your shower, you put on your best clothes, and you're ready to go. Now, as you walk to your friend's house, you're wearing your sandals, you are walking in unpaved roads, and pretty soon you would most likely have dirtied your feet again. And so you'd be offered back then a foot washing right before you enter the party. You don't need another bath, but you do need your feet cleaned. And this is most likely what Jesus was referring to when he says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. What I mean is this, for any one of us who has placed his or her faith in Jesus, our fundamental salvation was achieved on the day that we believed the gospel. In a sense, our bodies are already clean. But in another sense, we do need our feet washed by Jesus on a daily basis. These are moments each day when we think back to yesterday or the day before or the week before. And we, we think about the sins that we've committed. We repent humbly, asking to have our consciences made clean again by the blood of Jesus. It's not salvific uh, cleansing, but it's a daily cleansing of our sins that we commit. And I think this is also another time where it's a missed opportunity where we could we could really recover a sense of wonder at Jesus's ever forgiving love for us I mean it's it's great to know that as Christians your sins are forgiven once and for all that you don't have to attend a certain number of church services or uh, not mess up again for a, a certain number of days before you're forgiven no Christ's blood shed for us was once and for all and it covered each and every sin that you've ever committed in the past and will ever commit in the future. You know, and this would be unbelievable for ancient Jews because every sin in the Old Testament, even unintentional ones, would, have, would require an actual physical sacrifice, oftentimes in the form of a, a lamb or a goat. They'd have to take it to the priest. But in Hebrews 9.22... It tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's just the way God works. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But you know what? These Old Testament sacrifices would, could never take away sins. Priests had to offer them again and again for their people as well as for themselves. 
and which is why Hebrews 9.26 tells us that Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And by shedding his own blood on the cross for undeserved sinners like you and me, Jesus has perfected for all of time those who are being sanctified. Church, I want you to know that I'm praying for those of you today who are feeling just this incredible uh, struggling to feel a sense of God's love for you. I know how painful it can be to feel so far away from him. And I want you to know, I want so very much for each of you to recover a sense of Jesus's stunning love for you, his shocking love, his death embracing love, his ever forgiving love for you. But I also realize that what I've been telling you all this up until now is what needs to happen. I haven't haven't said anything about how to actually get it to happen. And so what I want to stress more than anything else this morning is the fact that you and I can't just snap our fingers and recover these senses on our own. It's going to take a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit of God to renew these senses, this sense of wonder and the sense of his presence in our lives. In a word, we need revival. We need a genuine spirit-wrought revival in our lives. Now, I know that word is thrown around a lot these days and often without much explaining. And so, you know, to understand revival, what you really need to do is first understand what gospel renewal is, this term gospel renewal. And so listen to what Tim Keller uh, defines as personal, uh, as, as gospel renewal. Personal gospel renewal means, and this is an individual here, personal gospel renewal means the gospel doctrines of sin and grace are actually experienced, not just known intellectually. It comes from seeing in ourselves deeper layers of self-justification, unbelief, and self-righteousness than we have ever seen before. And when a group of believers, large or small, undergo this kind of personal gospel renewal all at the same time, that's what we call corporate gospel renewal. In other words, a revival. Spiritual revival takes place when the Holy Spirit works in extraordinary ways through ordinary means of grace. And oftentimes that's through hearing the preached word of God. In the summer of 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached his most famous sermon of his life. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, it wasn't the first time he preached this sermon. He actually preached it um, before for his own congregation. But something remarkable happened the second time around as he preached it to another congregation in Enfield, Connecticut. Now, Edwards was not known to be the most dramatic preacher. He was not, a di- he was not dynamic and passionate like some of the preachers of his day. He was said to have spoken in a monotone as he read from his manuscript. But people would literally pass out as they sat under his preaching. In this sermon, Edwards used very carefully chosen words and images to press into the listener's conscience just how real 
their encounter with hell would be apart from Christ. It was so moving, it was so gripping that that day, that morning, Edwards could not even finish his sermon because there was just so much wailing and crying out. It was recorded that people were actually saying, what shall I do to be saved? They were cut to the heart because they saw the true state of their souls before an infinitely holy God. And this was exactly where Jesus wanted them to be. Because at their moment of just uh, understanding their lowest point uh, before infinitely holy God, this was the point where then and only then they would be stunned. They would be shocked into marveling at the realities of the glorious truths of the gospel. Church, isn't this what we all need? Isn't it so easy to grow numb to the gospel whenever we hear it preached on Sundays, whenever we read it um, in a book? Isn't it so easy to lose this sense of God's love for us? Which is why I want us to just commit to praying. I want to challenge you and commit and encourage you to pray together with me for spiritual revival in our time. Even in the middle of a pandemic, maybe especially because we're in the middle of a pandemic. You know, revival could show up just like in Edwards Day in a very spectacular way, or it could show up in a very quiet, as a very quiet, gentle movement of the spirit among us. Either way, I want us to pray for revival. I want us to pray that God would bring corporate personal renewal among each of us in our day. Let's pray that God would help each of us recover a sense of wonder at his, his death-embracing love, his shocking love, his ever-forgiving love for us. Father, we give you thanks that we have hope in the cross of Christ alone, and it is not because of anything we've done, but is all by your grace and our faith in his cross, the cross of Jesus Christ that brings us into your presence and keeps us there. So may your gospel come and may your spirit come and bring revival among us. Help us to discover and rediscover the gospel truths once again. Lord, I pray that the new birth would take place in many people's lives among us. And I pray that you would remove hearts of resistance toward you in response to your preached word and to the gospel. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.